Speaking of love, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Love from Jesus. We're not going to hear everything Jesus has to say about love. He has lots to say about love, but I promise you what he says is provocative. It's encouraging. It's important. It's sobering sometimes, surprising, shocking sometimes. But we are going to hear Jesus talk about love in John 14. So if you have a Bible, you can look at the 14th chapter of the gospel account given to us by John. If the first half of John 14 is about believing in Jesus, trusting in Him for eternal life, He being the way and the truth and the life, if the first half of John 14 is about believing in Jesus for eternal life and comfort and encouragement, the second half of John 14 is about loving Jesus. Okay, It's about a lot of other things. But really, what's going to be re-emphasized again and again is believers loving Jesus and what that's supposed to look like and what it can look like, even by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, what we're going to do this morning is begin looking at chapter 14, verses 15 and following, focusing on loving Jesus. And I just have to tell you, it could get messy. Uh, <laughs> I have an outline. I'm going to share my outline with you. It might get in the way. I don't know. I don't think we'll get done. Um, I think my, Molly just said to me, you're fidgety this morning. I'm fidgety because there's so much in John 14. Again, we could just do like a one-year kind of series on all of the different questions it brings up and all of the different relevant rabbit trails we could go down. And it's, it's awesome. But in all sincerity, I've already prayed for us as we do this together that you'll benefit and you won't just say, I can't, I, I, can't, I can't deal with it. There's just too much. The fire hydrant sip of water is just too overwhelming. There's great, great stuff in John 14 from Jesus. And I really, 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 really want you to, to be in absorption mode and, and hear what Jesus has to say because it really does influence the way you think it's supposed to and the way you act. Um, it's awesome, awesome stuff, but like I said, it could get ugly. Um, I was tempted to just throw the outline away. Maybe that would be helpful. Maybe it wouldn't be, but we're not going to breeze through it. So nine expected responses from all who love Jesus. Nine expected responses from all who love Jesus. So if you love Jesus, you're supposed to do certain things. You're supposed to think certain ways. There are right responses for you if you love Jesus. Think about the original setting, okay? Think about Peter, who clearly said he loved Jesus by the fact that he would do anything and everything for Jesus. He didn't even want Jesus doing things for him because he didn't understand. But in this setting, Peter's with him. And if anyone has shown zeal and want to love Jesus, it was, it was Peter. We, Peter gets a lot of thumps on the head, a lot of hard knocks. But one thing's for sure, he was bold in his desire to express love for Jesus. And Peter with the other disciples is there with Jesus. And Jesus is going to explain to them, okay, if you love me, and they're all saying they do, Here's how I want you to live your life. Here's how I want you to respond. Number one, expected response number one for all who love Jesus. Number one, do what he says. Do what he says. This is Christian Living 101. 
isn't it? How about verse 15? Look there with me if you would. Quoting Jesus, this is what Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Doesn't get any more basic, does it? If you love me, you'll do what I say. You'll keep my commandments. I've already kind of given you that the, the hint, but I think it is really important that we realize this is not, Jesus doesn't seem to be in scolding mode. And I sometimes use this verse as a scolding verse for myself or for others. The context so far has been comfort and encouragement. Jesus is getting ready to leave. He's going to the cross. These are his final hours. And we have seen Peter, and right, from chapter 13 and 14, they go together, and with 15, this is all a package. We've seen Peter uh, most expressly saying, without saying those words, but with his actions, I love you, right? He's talking to those kind of people. So if you love me, Peter, for application, if you're a Christian, you say you love Jesus, for encouragement, if you love Jesus, then what he wants, boil it all down, is for you to keep his commandments. To do what he says. Right? And he's going to keep repeating this throughout the whole rest of the chapter. In different ways, he's just going to keep saying it. If you love me, you do what I say. If you love me, you obey. If you love me, you keep my commandments. Not because it's bad for us, but because it's right, because it's good for us. But it's Christian living. This is not how you become a Christian. But it's how you live a Christian life. You do what Jesus says. It's what's best. It's what's good. It's what glorifies God. It's what honors God. It's what encourages other believers. Now, what does he mean by my commandments? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, we could say, well, that's anything that Jesus says. And that would be true. I mean, we could even say it's anything Jesus and his apostles say, because after all, they're apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, so they speak with his authority. So that would, that would be true. But what's also true would, in, in close context here is, in chapter 13, he said to the disciples, specifically, and he called it a commandment, that what? That you love each other. That's the freshest thing on their ears. It's the last thing they've heard in association with commandment. I'm not saying it's the only thing, but it certainly is what's been said last in chapter 13. And it's what's emphasized. You know, 1 John, a lot, a lot of what 1 John does is clarify the teachings of Jesus or further drive them home. And that's, that, that's a repeated note again and again and again in 1 John that if you're a Christian and you say you love God, the natural thing to do then, supernaturally, is to love other believers. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love Jesus, you love other Christians. Super easy to understand. If you love Jesus, you want to be like Jesus, and Jesus loved the disciples. We're going to get to that too. Now, maybe, here's something I forgot, but I can emphasize it now. 
When Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Who does he sound like? Other than Jesus. What, what, what kind of person, think biblically literate person, when you hear someone say, if you love me, you do what I say, you keep my commandments. Let me say, put it another way. What kind of person has commandments? God. It's meant to sound that way. This emphasis on, on the Father and the Son and the union between them and the unity between them and then the Spirit's going to be introduced here and, 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 and it's amazingly emphasized. But it's meant to be a standout. Jesus sounds like He's God. If you love me, you keep my commandments. That sounds very Old Testament-ish, but it's in the New Testament. And we're meant to see it that way. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 10, chapter 11... That's the kind of stuff that God says. Old covenant world. Now Jesus, the author of the new covenant, talks the same way. It's meant to be. It's pretty awesome. And by the way, then also that helps us to understand, well, well, why would I do what he says? Well, because he's God. That's why. I want to come back to that and at the risk of being confusing we'll come back to it but for a moment I want to go to number two it's not it doesn't have to be confusing pastor how should I live the Christian life what should I do what is God's will for me what does he want me to do do what Jesus says short counseling meeting right that's a short book. But Jesus is going to keep repeating it because it's what we really need to grasp. But number two, another expected response from all who love Jesus. Number two, love and obey, for there's no other way. Never mind, I'm not going to sing. Love and obey in light of his love. I'm just pushing the pause button for a second because I want to make sure, make sure, make sure, make sure we understand this in its context. So I'm going to go outside of chapter 14 just for a moment. But 13 and 14 go together. Please, 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 please remember that we're called to obey and we're called to love God and neighbor. But what comes first? What comes first is God's love for us. And that's what, was that's what was emphasized in chapter 13. So it should be fresh in our minds. Oh, Jesus loved uniquely like no one else had ever, ever loved. Chapter 13, if you just want to glance up to chapter 13, verse 1. I just don't want us to forget this. Maybe this should have been point number one, but I made it point number two. Number, or excuse me, verse one. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Ideas, to the very end he loved them. And he's going to lay his life down for them. Reminds me of 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Not that we love God, 
That's not what initiated this relationship. Not that we love God, but what? He loved us. So the gospel is the good news about God's love for us, giving His Son... Oh, in chapter 3, we learned about God's love for us, right? So God's love, Christ's love, giving His life up for us. Chapter 10, chapter 13, He loves us loyally and faithfully to the very end. But now, 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 in light of that, it's this number two thing. We're called to love. But please don't forget that or we end up having a different religion. We're called to love and obey Jesus, not for eternal life. We have eternal life by believing in Jesus, the one who loves us first, right? So make sure, make sure, make sure you have that locked in your mind. And now we can say, okay, now I understand his great love for us and we weren't deserving. Now he calls us to love one another and we're therefore loving other people who aren't deserving. But it's right. It's imitating Christ. This is proper. This is a a response uh, to, to God's love and his love that he's shown to us. Christians are supposed to love, but we're supposed to love not to earn our way, but in light of his love for us because of what he's done for us and giving himself up for us. And now we want to do the right thing. God, what would you have me do? What would you, how would you want me to respond, Jesus? I love you because you loved me like this and you promised to love me to the very end. Irreversibly so. Now what? Salvation is all of you. But, but, but how would you want me to respond? Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And the freshest commandment on everybody's mind is that you love one another. Oh, okay. Well, that's easy. Easy to understand. It'll be easy once we're all glorified. But we're not. It'll be easy once we're all in the Father's house that he talked about in chapter 14 early on. But we're not. So it's challenging. It's hard. It's difficult. In some ways, it's our greatest problem. In some ways... Sometimes Christians seem to excel at doing the opposite of this. Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. And I'm here to remind you, that starts with love. Giving to people what they don't even deserve. Very difficult, but not impossible. There's help on the way. Number three, back to our text. Expected response from all who love Jesus. Number three, know that help is on the way. For us, since we're not in John 14, help has already come. But for the disciples, help is on the way. Right? He's just called them to do this huge task. But it's not impossible. Look what Jesus says in verse 16. 
And I will ask the Father, Jesus says, and he will give you another helper. See, help. To be with you forever. Jesus is leaving, but he's going to be with you forever, this helper. And he tells us who the helper is in verse 17. Even, so extraordinarily, even the spirit of truth. I, I wrote in my margin, oh, and Jesus just called himself the truth in verse 16. So wh- whatever is being given to help, even the spirit of truth, so it's like Jesus in some ways. How about in John eight thirty two? Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, the truth about the gospel. But here we have even the spirit of truth, the helper whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. You who trust in Jesus is what he's saying. For he dwells with you and will be in you. Okay. Commandment, yes. If you love me, do what I say. And you don't do this in your own power, in your own strength. I am going to Make sure you have help, and the help is the Spirit of Truth. We call Him, as He is called elsewhere, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's this unique, special helper that is sent by God to help us, in context, do what Jesus says. It's not in our own strength. It's not in our own power. The same word, helper, is used of Jesus, as a matter of fact, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. He's another who's like Jesus. That's who, who it is. I think today's going to bring up probably a lot of questions about the Holy Spirit. I hope that some of them are answered. But chapter 16 is where we're going to see more. So if you say, I had so many questions he didn't answer, 16 will give us an opportunity for a little bit of cleanup, (laughs) just so you're aware. He's the helper. Some of your Bible translations have translated translated it counselor. That's a good way to translate it. Don't don't belittle it though, counselor, as in like you know, just for for marriage counseling or something like that. Probably has you need to, need to at least know that it can have the legal aspect, counsel, counselor. Oftentimes it does. I'm not sure it does in this context, but oftentimes it does. Legal representation, helper. That, that's a good way to translate it unless you think somehow a helper's an inferior. Oh yeah, I do these things and I have some helpers, some underlings. No. Another helper, same word for Jesus. The idea is assistance. The idea is helping you. The idea is provision. Sometimes the idea is consoling. You need help in, in, in being consoled. Someone to come alongside of you. Someone to assist you is the idea. And again, sometimes it's a legal kind of emphasis. But we know in our context, help, power, to obey Jesus. 
Maybe I do want to take a, just a, a bit of a rabbit trail here, and that would be to go to Isaiah 40. And if you're not one to, if, if you're easily distracted, just stay in John. Um, just kind of check out for the next couple minutes. But if you're not easily distracted, let's go to Isaiah 40, because so many of the things that are emphasized by Jesus in his earthly ministry have connections to Isaiah's prophecy about the Messiah, about redemption, about rescuing, setting free the people of God, atonement, ultimate, ultimate comfort, ultimate rest, ultimate deliverance. And we know the standard Isaiah 53s and 52 and 54. We know some of those standard ones. But Isaiah 40 is actually a critical text when it even comes to understanding Messiah, ultimate deliverance for the people of God. And the reason it comes to my mind, and other commentators point this out, in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word that's translated at the beginning of Isaiah 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort, is our word. The comforter. If you're a language student, the paraclete. So here, if you're a language student, parakaleo, parakaleo. Oh, that sounds like paraclete helper in the New Testament. Yeah. I think it's on purpose. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort. Help, help. Consoling, consoling. Encouraging, encouraging. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. And this is far different from the striking, strong statements of condemnation because of their sin, because of their rebellion, because of their opposition to God and His ways and to one another. And now, good news comes. Comfort. Comfort. There's consolation. And it begs the question, why? It's not because of Israel and, and, and her obedience. She's just taking a big scolding. But here, comfort, comfort. My people, says your God. Verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is, is ended and her iniquity or sin is pardoned. See what's happening? Because her sin, her rebellion has been pardoned in this prophecy, there can be what? There's consoling. There's comfort. Oh, yeah. And it goes on to say that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That could be confusing. The idea is proportionality. Um, exactly what is due. Justice has been carried out because of atonement and provision. Why did I take us there? I can go back to John. It is a messianic text about the comfort that comes from forgiveness. The comfort that comes from atonement. The com comfort that comes from reconciliation by God, not by Israel. And here we have Jesus, who is the paraclete, the 
consoler, 1 John chapter 2, and he's sending the Spirit who is the paraclete of a different kind to console, to encourage, to help. Now let me tie it up and put a bow on it. He's empowering us to do the right thing. But the Holy Spirit, and we're going to see He also teaches us. He even teaches us about where ultimate consolation comes from. It comes from the work of God in redemption. And the Spirit is here to teach us that and remind us of that, that our love is in light of His love. Here's a helpful quotation. This helps us want to love obediently in light of the good news and the consolation by the Consoler. Now I want to do the right thing. I want to obey Jesus' commandments because they're not against me anymore because I'm not seen before God as the violator because He's provided redemption and atonement. Is that what Jesus has in mind in our text? I'm not sure, but I know it's true. How about back to verse 18? All of you who just checked out and were doing something else, we're back to verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you. That's a pretty bold statement. I will come to you. And at first you might even be thinking, well, that just means resurrection. It doesn't seem to be in the context. I will come to you. I will come to you in the person of the Spirit, who's sometimes called the Spirit of Christ. He sent in His name, we're going to see, even though He sent by the Father. And so here, I will come to you by the power of the Spirit. As the Spirit, I will come to you. It's meant to be encouraging. I mean, just in a different context, we'd say, if, if Jesus could only be here, Everything would be better. I think Jesus would want you to know He is here. In the person of the Spirit, who is His Spirit, who has been sent by Father and Son. Make no mistake about it, Jesus will return bodily. And that's different. We're waiting for that. There is a distinction. But He, he says, I will come to you. The Spirit of Christ. Think about how hard it is to live the Christian life. I don't need to tell you that. Living the Christian life is like, ugh. Sometimes I'm tempted to say, I wish we could maybe not have the Spirit for just a nanosecond. Right? Because we would probably go, oh. I don't even know how to illustrate this. I mean, when you see people who are smart, intelligent, educated people drawing absolutely crazy conclusions that are about as upside down and perverse as they could possibly be, maybe that is kind of getting at it. 
if we had no Holy Spirit power and the Spirit of God was not with us, I mean, if, if I think my Christian life is hard now, and I think it is, and Jesus actually told these disciples, and he's going to reiterate that it's going to be hard. And yet he's saying, helper, consoler, comforter, encourager, Holy Spirit power. How do we illustrate that? I don't want to belittle it, but when you have a power outage, you're like, man, I didn't know how good I had it. Crisis, right? Because it hardly ever happens. We've got it so good, and then the power is out, and it's like, what in the world? Everything is upside down. We don't know how good we have it. This is not heaven on earth. We're waiting for something better. but we've got it far better than we even realize. You have the Spirit of God bearing fruit, empowering, consoling us. Let's move on. Expected response from all who love Jesus, number four. Know that you have a truly personal relationship with God. Know that you have, if you're a Christian, if you love Jesus because He loved you first, you have a truly unique, special, extraordinary relationship with God. A special personal relationship with God. Now I know that that phrase some, for some of you has baggage. Because you've heard it thrown around so often. A personal relationship with God. A personal relationship with God. And, and sometimes people use it in kind of a cheesy way. Well, push the cheese tray aside for a minute. You have, if you're a believer a unique, special, personal relationship with God that we're supposed to be impressed with and we're supposed to be comforted by and encouraged by beyond anything we ourselves could muster up. And we're going to see it and you're going to see the personal. And Jesus wants you to know this. Look at verse 19 and be impressed, be encouraged, be built up by this, yet a little while and the world will see me no more. See, yours is unique if you have this because not everybody gets this. They will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Now maybe he means you will see me Later, when you come to my father's house, chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. But it seems to be, even though it's harder for me to understand, he's talking about you will see me and you'll be encouraged, you'll be comforted, you'll be consoled because you'll see me in the power of the Spirit. Harder to get my mind around, but I actually think that, that, that's what he's getting at.
we're going to keep going in a second, but I couldn't help but just stop and meditate and dwell and ponder, because I live, you also will live. Because of what I do for you and you believe in me, I'm going to live, I'm going to be raised from the dead, you're going to be too. And Holy Spirit power for Christian living. Okay, verse 20. We're going to emphasize this personal relationship. In that day, the day when I come to you via the Spirit, I think, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. I wouldn't try to draw this with charts and graphs and circles. Maybe you could, but in my mind it just makes me confused. The idea is unique relationship. The idea is an extraordinary personal relationship. And as the Son has this unique, extraordinary personal relationship with the Father and the Father with the Son, He's bringing us into the equation because we've believed in Him and now we actually share in this unique, special, personal kind of relationship. That's the solution to the human dilemma. We're estranged from God. The Bible's so bold as to sometimes use the word enemy. There's conflict. We need reconciliation. And now he's doing this in, in the, in the, in the talk. Unity together, reconciliation, relationship, friendship. Wow. Did you also notice that he says, In verse 20, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. You will know this. How will we know? I'm going to start by answering that question because Jesus said that's how it's going to be when the Spirit comes. And I'm going to encourage you to remember that he says, you will know this. You know what I need to hear is that I will know this because Jesus said, Because I don't feel it. I don't. I don't know what it feels like to be in the Son, in the Father, this special, unique kind of relationship. Feelings are good. I like feelings. I like feeling good. Sometimes I feel good. Sometimes I don't feel good, right? I'm not schizophrenic, but you get the idea. But he says, you will know this. And so I at least want to start by reminding you, this is what Christians are supposed to know. I realize it's a whole lot of theology and you say, I don't really, this didn't change the way I feel. Well, let's start with, it should change our knowing. This is true for you. If you believe in Jesus, it is true that you have this unique, special, extraordinary, no longer in conflict with relationship with God. awesome. Know this. And some days you might feel it. If you do, let me know how it feels. I would like to know. Right? Because a lot of times I don't feel very good. But there are times, obviously, it it, it changes my affections and my desires and I want to do the right thing. Okay, maybe that's feelings. But it starts with Jesus says, you're going to know this. He's the spirit of truth that's given to you. You're going to know truth truth according to Him about me and about God and how you relate to Him. 
My friends, this is awesome. This is awesome. We can know this because Jesus says so. I want to use the word communion. We have this communion with God. That's kind of confusing sometimes, but, but re- re- relationship. They're, they're sharing. Not that we share in deity. There's a whole thing, a lot of things it doesn't mean. But I, I don't know how to stress enough what he's getting at. Is it, it, there, there's unique inseparability of relationship, irreversible because of what Jesus has done. Now he, reiter- he re-emphasizes what he said in verse 15. We're not going to do any more points, so don't get too freaked out. Um, but in verse 15, he said, if you love me, you keep my commandments and, and those things. But now in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Just the other side of things. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. This is what I meant by it might get messy because now we're looking at the same reality from a different sort of angle, but it's all about the relationship and it's all about the positive relationship that human beings could have with God. Oh, by the way, once again, Jesus in saying this sounds like God. This is how God talks in the Old Testament. And, I will, and, and, and how does he say it at the end there? And manifest myself to him. What's interesting is in the Old Testament, that manifesting talk is used for different things, but often and frequently it's used for God making himself known through his law. Isn't it interesting? Here we have Jesus manifesting himself as the fulfillment of that law, making himself uniquely, extraordinarily known. We've been seeing that throughout John. But again, the emphasis is on relational, making himself known. Let's go to 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Back in chapter 7, they, they, they wanted him to manifest himself to everybody, and Jesus said no. So how will you do this just for us? Verse 23 says, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. So this is, I take it, this is a spiritual manifestation. This isn't one we see. But it doesn't make it any less real. And it's extraordinary. God dwelt among his people, tabernacle. Unique, special, extraordinary. God dwelt among his people, temple, unique, special, extraordinary. 
And now Jesus is saying, we will dwell. How does he say it? We will make our home with you. And as we are going to see, and we see in this text and in other texts, now this great, powerful, amazing God who uniquely, specially dwelt with his people in extraordinary ways through the power of the Spirit dwells in us. Believers. I won't even pretend to know how good that is. But it's, God has always been a personal God. But this is extraordinarily personal. This is New Covenant personal. This is types and shadows were awesome. The personal God making himself personally known, but not like this. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what the Old Testament prophets were waiting for. A personal, unique, special, extraordinary, no one other than believers have this kind of relationship. And it at least starts with us knowing this. We can talk about what it looks like. We can talk about other aspects. But it at least starts with us trying to get our minds around. This is what is true from Jesus and he wants those who love him to know this stuff. God dwelling in his people. Our tendency is to think the opposite. I want the smells and I want the bells. And if I can't experience it with my senses all of them, it's not that good. I want surround sound, right? I want full experience because that's always better. What's interesting is it's sometimes better, but in this case, Jesus is pointing out that what's better is not the tabernacle, not the temple, but the unique, because of the gospel, giving of the Spirit, dwelling in you. What's interesting is, we don't have to make a false choice though, because He is preparing a place for us in His Father's house. See, it gets a little messy, but it's all in the same chapter. But by now we need to stop. Read it, keep reading it, and at least know that it starts with knowing and understanding these things. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Omaha Bible Church. Thank you for things that are beyond our imaginations, somewhat beyond our comprehension. Thank you that you've come to us uniquely and personally through your son, Jesus. And thank you that you have uniquely come to us and personally even to dwell within us, not in buildings or statues, but in us as the people of God. And we're grateful for this. Thank you that you love us so that we might love you in response. May we leave here today wanting to obey Jesus, starting with loving others because he's loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen.